for our sermon, let's turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3, let's uh, try to move through a few psalms in the evening before we get back to uh, 1 Samuel. Um, this psalm will place us a little bit ahead of the story in 2 Samuel, actually, but uh, so you'll get a preview of things to come. But let me read to you Psalm 3. <clears throat> o Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Let me pray for a moment. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon is We Have Troubles, and the first point in the sermon is We Have Troubles. <laughs> psalm 3 is a, a, a psalm, and you just heard it. We're surrounded by troubles. And the point of the psalm is when we're surrounded by troubles, it should trigger us to pray to the Lord. And when do we not have troubles? And when are we not surrounded by troubles? Jesus says, in this life you will have troubles. Job says man was born for trouble. In fact, we could say that Christians have more troubles than non-Christians do. We have troubles that they simply don't have to endure. I was talking to one of our men a few weeks ago, and he told me as he works for his big company, that he has to deal with troubles. That all the men around him, they don't worry about being deceitful. They're not worrying about lying. They're not worrying about some of these things. But it is a trouble to him. Uh, we just had a man in our congregation just now say that there's some troubles at his job. Maybe a non-Christian wouldn't have these troubles. Our young people go to college and immediately they have troubles when they hear a tenured professor saying things that... They don't believe. Non-Christians just take it in. But we have troubles. Christians see the wicked prospering. We could go look at Psalm 73. Have you ever said, Surely it is vain that I've kept my heart pure. That's what the psalmist said. I mean, we look at the, the wicked and they are, they have their fat. It says they're fat. They're happy. They have, they're pleased. Everything's going their way. And we look at our lives and the psalmist says, i got plagues everywhere I go. <laughs> I'm being tempted and I'm in a trial every time I look around. Is walking with God doing me any good? From all appearances, it doesn't seem so. And then Christians also, we have the same troubles that all non-Christians have. We all get older. We all have aches and pains and we all go to work. We all have difficulties at work. 
We all have bosses sometimes we don't like. We all get sick. <laughs> Lately it seems like all of us have been sick. We have loved ones that die and our hearts are broken. If there was ever a man who was born with troubles going on in his life, it's David. Now, I try to keep this short, but let me give you just a short a rendition of what we have studied in the evenings. As a shepherd, he had troubles with lions and bears. As a young man, he had troubles with his brother Eliab. As a, a little bit older man, he kills Goliath, and guess who he starts having troubles with after that? With after that King Saul. Once King Saul dies, it takes seven years for him to be installed as a king over all Israel. He's installed over uh, Judah first for seven years. David had troubles with sin. And when David confessed that he had sinned against God, God was quick to forgive him. And then God was quick to say, you're going to have some massive consequences because of your sins. And in only four years, as he mishandles certain family matters regarding Absalom and his sister Tamar, after all of that fiasco that he mishandled, we have a son named Absalom, his son, who sits himself outside the gates of the city and woos all the hearts of Israel to himself, and he seeks to steal their hearts away from David, and then he proclaims himself to be king. This is the context of Psalm 3. It says there, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, I think if you read the psalm, you'll see that it's very generic. It's generic because it's for all of us, but this is what is going on in the background. Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people to himself, and now there's no doubt that this is part of the consequences that God has promised to David. But we have to think very clearly at this point. God did not authorize Absalom's revolt. God did not authorize it. God is not behind it. David is going to endure consequences and God is going to save him through it all. He has to go through this. For Absalom's part, he is not only in opposition to a father. That's what he's not understanding. He's not just in opposition to a dad. He's in opposition to the Lord's anointed king. That's what David kept in mind all the time in regard to King Saul. If you turn back over to chapter 2, we have Absalom lining up with the rulers and the kings who go against the Lord and his anointed. He's conspiring in this way. This is contrary to the will of God, and no matter how poorly David mishandled family matters, Absalom has no right to go after the king. He would proclaim himself to be king, forget God. And it was a thorough conspiracy. Thousands of David's loyal subjects went over to Absalom. If you hear, you've read that, thousands, it's, there's literally around 20,000, they see, leaving, they are, are, they're coming into Jerusalem to go against David. The people are crying out, Absalom is king in Hebron. And it would have been very easy as David leaves Jerusalem for all who are left to fall in with Absalom. Well, what does David do when he's surrounded with his troubles? Well, all 20,000 enemies, all coming towards him, he turns to the Lord. And when you and I have troubles in the new year, what should we do? Let your troubles turn you to the Lord for prayer. In David's case, it appears that everyone's on Absalom's side. Public opinion is God will not deliver him, and it doesn't look good 
Folks, listen. You might say, I am like David. I have brought these consequences upon myself. Have you ever felt that way? Yeah, these are my consequences. I sinned and I'm getting the consequences. But how are you going to go through these consequences that maybe they're your fault? (laughs) Maybe there's some of the things that are your fault. Well, the only way to go through them and be sustained through them is to look to a loving God who will help you through them. On the other hand, you may say, well, maybe uh, you haven't brought this. These are not consequences that you've brought upon yourself. They just have fallen upon you. As we read in in, uh, James chapter 1, consider all joy we encounter various trials when they fall on you. Counter when when they fall on you. Maybe you you didn't bring them upon yourself, but they're falling on you. What are you going to do? How are you going to be sustained? Well, you're going to have to turn to the Lord in prayer. When you feel like God is not with you, when you feel that you have every reason to believe that God has departed from you, you need to look to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes people tell us, you know, you shouldn't trust in the Lord. It looks like if you trust in the Lord that being a Christian is just about going to destroy you. (laughs) Oh, man, this guy's a Christian. He's going to be destroyed. Look how bad things are for him. But we have to tell ourselves, even though the whole world is saying, what is the line here? There's no deliverance for him and God. We have to tell ourselves to turn to the Lord in prayer. And that's what David does. That's the second point. Troubles trigger prayer. It would be so easy to look at those thousands. Those thousands upon thousands who are coming in Jerusalem. He's leaving town. And David, instead of looking at those men, verse 1 says, Oh Lord, he looks to the Lord. He says, How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There's no deliverance for him and God. But you, oh Lord, are a shield about me. We might even say my glory. We're going to read that in a minute. My glory in the one who lifts my head. Who is this person that he prays to? Well, you know, I think uh, Ben has his legacy Bible and the legacy Bible has all the L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh in the Hebrew. And his Bible will say Yahweh every time it's there. It's also translated I am. It's the, it's the name that God gave Moses to, to explain himself to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 3. Well, what does I am mean? I am that I am. What it means that God is an in, inexhaustible person. And so when David is going through these trials, what does he do? He looks to an inexhaustible resource. This is what we do. We turn to an inexhaustible Resource. God is timeless. Yahweh is self-sufficient. He's in need of nothing. He owns the cattle who are on a thousand hills, never sleeping, never slumbering, never tiring, never growing weary. He doesn't need help. He's powerful. He creates all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's wise. He doesn't need our advice. (laughs) He's always the same. And when David turns to the Lord, he's praying to the I am. You know, I still remember this, and I just like to say it, so I'm going to say it a few times during this sermon. Um, I remember reading the first time about um, God revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush. And you have to understand that God, he is the only, this is the only God who has taken a nation out from the midst of another nation and put them in another place. That's the only God who's done this. uh, Moses couldn't do it. 
Moses was just a mediator. God is the one who did it, and only an inexhaustible resource is going to be able to save David from Absalom's conspiracy. And so when troubles assail you and dangers affright, as our hymn reads, you must turn to I am. You have to turn to this inexhaustible resource. And one of the things as you get to the New Testament, guess who takes I am upon himself? Guess who says I have the authority to call myself I am? Jesus does. So we turn to Jesus. He's the I am. And we can put all those predicates behind it. I am the bread. I am the Life, I'm the resurrection, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Turn to Jesus. He's the one who takes care of our biggest problem, which is with sin. And he can also take care of all those other smaller problems that come along. Once you and I are brought into new life with Jesus Christ, Jesus doesn't sit back and let us figure it out on our own. He is there for us to be a resource what do we read in Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Him or in Christ, literally, who infuses or strengthens me. Second, we look not only at an inexhaustible resource, but to the Lord who is our defense. Now, look at verse 3. It says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Now, when you have enemies... You know, you and I, we need something better sometimes than the shield that they would wear on their left arm and use the sword on the, in the other hand. They literally had a shield back in those days that would wrap all the way around a person. And I, I'm going to melt two thoughts together here. Shield about me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. Think about it like this. Shield and glory, that speaks of defense. Let me explain. The glory of the Lord at times in the scriptures points to the Lord defending his people. In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses and were told that a pillar of cloud came down and then went away, leaving her judged with leprosy. He was defended. In Numbers 14, when the people of Israel became rebellious and were about to stone Moses and Aaron... The glory of the Lord descended and appeared there, protecting them from being stoned. In number 16, when Korah led a rebellion, the glory of the Lord appeared. The earth opened up and swallowed up 250 rebellious people. I don't know if this is on David's mind, but it's on mine. I think maybe he knew his Bible better than me. But I think you can see shield and glory being defense. Maybe David is saying, you are my glory. You're the one who defends me from my enemies. I don't have to say a word. How many times maybe you and I, we don't look for a glory cloud to come down and and take care of us when we're at work (laughs) to defend us against somebody. But how many times have we been saved in times at work? How many times have we been plucked out of something before uh, something happened? Third, the Lord provides you an access to his, to his presence. Notice verse 4, he says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Now think about this. The holy mountain is over here. David and, and company is going this way. So he's leaving the place where God reveals himself. He's leaving the place where the, the glory of the Lord is above the mercy seat. The blood's poured on the mercy seat. And 
between the two cherubim, the glory of the Lord is there. But he's going this way. Can David still be heard? <laughs> he says, yes. He says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he still answers me even though I'm going this way, and God is over here. Why can he be heard? He can be heard because the blood of the Lamb has been spilled on the mercy seat. Not because David is so good, but because God is so good. David's prayers are heard. And when you and I pray to the Lord, we're no longer looking to a a piece of furniture and blood poured out on that piece of furniture. We're no longer thinking about that. But we have the temple who is Jesus Christ himself. And through Jesus, we enter into the Holy of Holies. And God hears all our prayers, not because we are so good, but because Jesus is so good. When David was surrounded by troubles, his troubles triggered prayer. And you know, the more he meditated on God, the more he thought about God out there when he was a young man and later on, he became intimate with the Lord. You know, um, I, I, I think 10 years ago, I was looking at some notes and reminded me 10 years ago, just about real close to this time, my wife and I went to the emergency room and I, they found out, I found out that I had pneumonia. And um, I remember being in the emergency room with my wife holding my head and talking to me. I remember the words. I mean, when you know somebody, when you go through a trial with somebody, when you hold each other's heads, you know, you, you do those things. We, we won't, I won't bring up some of those things we do sometimes with each other's heads. <laughs> How we kind of wash our, each other's faces off at times and all the rest. You know, we, we tell each other things. We get to know each other and uh, we have sweet words that we share with each other. And David is close to the Lord. He's intimate with the Lord. He tells the Lord what's on his heart. And the same thing is ought to be true of us. Why is it so hard for us to talk to a store attendant in the mall? <laughs> Have you ever tried to talk to a store attendant in the mall? You know why you don't want to talk to them? Because they're a stranger. <laughs> why is it so hard to talk to a stranger? Because we don't know them. But when, when we're going through trials and we pour our hearts out to the Lord, we get to know him better, just like we get to know each other better. And so the same thing's true of our prayer to the Lord. Do we, do we know him? Do we have words that we share with him? Do we read his word and let them take root in us? Are we thinking and meditating on him? Because see, trials equal intimacy. Sometimes we just think, trial, I've got to get rid of these trials. Sometimes we need to think that, oh, wow, I, I don't want to miss out on what God wants to do in this trial. And then I'll be glad it's all over because we all want it to be over sometimes, don't we? But it means humility. And where humility is, there's great, lots of grace. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In your trials, know the Lord is sympathetic with you. And think about who he is. Think about Jesus. He's at the cross. And what are the attributes of God that are on Jesus' mind? The will of God. Not my will, but your will be done. The cup, the wrath of God is on his mind. The love of God is on his mind before he gets to the cross. When he gets to the cross, the mercy of God is on his mind. Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
When he's on the cross, the work of God is on his mind. He says, it is finished. The work is finished. When he gets to the end, he says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Total commitment into God's hand is on his mind. These are the things that Jesus is thinking about in his trial. And you and I, we should think about God's attributes in our trials. He is an infinite resource. He is your defender and he's the one who opens up the access to God the Father. Well, finally, the third point is this. Prayer knows peace and deliverance. Prayer knows peace. Let me read to you 5 and 6 again, verses 5 and 6. I lay down and I slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. It goes like this, one commentator said. Lord, because you are who you are, then I can lie down and sleep. I can sleep. So there's peace and it's immediate and it's long term. The immediate peace is this. I lay down and I sleep. I wake up the next day because God sustains me. He doesn't, David doesn't let fear dominate his heart so much that he cannot sleep at all. Now, in our past studies, remember we talked about, remember we, this is, this is, helps this sermon. In past studies, we talked about God causing Saul and his army to fall into a deep sleep, giving David and Abishai an advantage and they slither all the way up to Saul's head and have a conversation right beside his ear. And they, you know, David convinces him, no, no, you know, no stabbing with the sword, I mean the spear. And they slither back out. Now, if God can cause the enemy to go to sleep, have a deep sleep, can't God cause his own king to have a nice deep sleep when he needs to have it before he gets up the next day? And I think the same thing we could all say has happened to us And sometimes maybe it doesn't happen that way. There's been times where I'm sure you could probably say, the Lord gave me a deep sleep in the midst of all the chaos. And there may be a time where you say, I got three three hours of sleep last night, but it it was adequate. I was able to make it. That might happen to you for three or four weeks. (laughs) And you think to yourself, I'll catch up later. God's keeping me. God's keeping me up. He he gave me a little cup, cup of coffee and he gave me three hours of sleep and I made it. God is giving us immediate peace, but he also gives us long-term peace. Look at verse 6. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves round about me, against me. And so this same God who gives us the peace that we need in the evening, one day at a time, is going to get us through this ordeal all the way to the end. But we need to make sure that we remember that we look to Jesus Christ Look to the one outside of us. Don't look for the peace that's on the inside of us. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let you, let it be fearful. So let us all say with David, I will not be afraid. Peace know, I mean, prayer knows peace and prayer also knows deliverance. So I'm going to read to you 7 and 8 one more time. Listen to these words. Arise, O Lord, save me. Oh, my God, for you have smitten my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Does does that sound like certain assurance in your opinion? (laughs) David is crying out with this battle cry, and he expects the Lord to respond. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the same line that, that Jonah writes. 
Did you notice all the verbs are in the past tense? Now, I know that some translations translate it in the present. But the New American Standard gets it right. These are in the past tense. Why are they in the past tense? He hasn't gotten the victory yet. Because he expects it. He expects to be, to be saved. He expects that his enemy's cheeks are going to be, maybe I should say their jaws are going to be broken and their teeth are going to be knocked out. He expects it. God has saved him before. God will save him again. Now, many people today are very concerned about this kind of language where enemies get their cheeks or their jaws broken and their teeth knocked out. And they want to say, I could never serve a God who, that, that David's praying to because this God is violent. David is praying that God would knock out men's teeth. But you and I have to face the facts that for David to have deliverance in this particular situation, his opponent has to be undone. Absalom has to repent or Absalom is going to be killed. That's just how it's going to be in this situation. And sometimes that's the way it is in other situations. If we go and we look at the prayer of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, it's not a very sweet prayer. The martyrs have been slain for their love for Christ, and they will cry to God to judge the earth and avenge their blood. We have to come to grips with the fact that biblical salvation sometimes is really messy and nasty. All we have to do is go to the cross. All we have to do is remind ourselves of, a, of the nasty piece of work that happened at the cross. And we all know about the nails and the piercing and the, the crown of thorns. It was a nasty thing that happened. But this is not where this should end. It's broader than this. I think David would teach us that, it's, that we need to expect the Lord to deliver us always. We need to be like Jonah who's in the belly of the fish and crying out to save me out of the gut of the fish. And we should expect the Lord to deliver us. I don't know how he might deliver you. It may be just one sentence that you heard in a sermon. It may be that you got a hug from a three-year-old who doesn't know about any of the chaos you're going through, but they said something and it cheered you up. And you, you that just had to be from God. It could have just been a scripture that came to your mind while you're praying. Could have been a meal that was provided for you. And you are understand the Lord, salvation comes from Him. Well, while you are on this earth, we will have troubles. Our troubles will trigger prayer. And you and I are not to waste our trials and our troubles, but we should turn to the Lord, who is an infinite resource, who defends us, who opens up a way to Himself through the blood of the Lamb into, the very, into His very presence who gives us peace and salvation. Now, as we enter this time where we come to the table, we've just talked about the messy business of the cross. And Jesus, in his institution of the, of, of the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he says, this cup is the new cup in my, uh, of the covenant which is given for you. He wants us to take and eat and he wants us to take the cup and drink. And as I prepare... Uh, for the Lord's Supper, I read Robert Bruce, who wrote a book on the Lord's Supper back in the 1500s. 
And he says that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we come to the Lord's Supper with two mouths. We have a physical mouth. We have a spiritual mouth. The physical mouth is going to take some bread. And the physical mouth is going to take some wine, eat and drink. The spiritual mouth, by faith, takes what the bread signifies, which is the body of Christ. The spiritual mouth takes what the wine signifies, which is the blood of Christ, and receives those into the soul. And this is what he writes. Just as the soul quickens the body, Christ quickens us in this supper, quickens our souls with the life that he lives in heaven. Christ makes you live the same life which the angels live in heaven. Christ makes you move not with worldly motion, but with heavenly, spiritual, and celestial motions. Christ inspires in you not outward senses, but heavenly senses. He works within you a spiritual feeling that in your heart and in your conscience you may find the effect of His Word. By our union with Jesus Christ, our souls get a thousand times greater benefits than our bodies do from our soul. By the presence of Christ in my soul, I see a blessed life. By the presence of Christ in my soul, I feel a blessed life. By the presence of Christ in my soul, that life increases in me more and more every day. And so tonight, do you have a spiritual mouth? Have you taken your mouth and used it to profess your faith in Christ? Have you been baptized? Are you a member of a church like ours? Then it's time to come and eat. We should examine our mouths and make sure that our spiritual mouths are prepared to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. Jesus in the Lord's Supper said that blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Is that you? Are you ready to eat with your spiritual mouth? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you and we, we praise you for this time, uh, Lord, to look into your word. Lord, we pray that as we move through our trials, that we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ and we would pray. We would find, Lord, a resource, defense. We would find an openness to, to come and to speak to you through him. We thank you for the peace. We thank you for deliverance. And we thank you tonight for this body and the blood that is open for us in this table. And we ask, Father, that you would help us use our spiritual mouths, that we might feed on the Lord Jesus Christ as we see the bread in front of our eyes. We would take hold of Christ by faith, and we would take hold of Christ as we see the cup in front of our eyes. And we would be nourished, and we might know that your grace is at work in us. And, Lord, we pray that you will use this, help us prepare for the days ahead. We will praise you for it, Lord. We ask that you'll set these elements apart from their common and sacred use. Lord, for your good, I mean, for, for our good and for your glory. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.